0: Thank you very
1: much, sorry, for this kind of uh, introduction. Uh, I just want to say about this, all these uh, manipulations and so on, I know it's the topic of the day, how we are, you know, manipulated in all possible ways and so on, but in a strange way, I am not in, uh, I'm not in such a mega panic about it. Or maybe this, what I will say now, makes it even more dangerous. Namely, don't underestimate the stupidity of computers, nonetheless. For me, the problem is not they will know everything that we think, but no, they will totally misread us, and that will then be the information for the social big other, and so on. So my basic advice, when you are in a situation that you describe, is uh, lie directly. Like I know, because my wife is doing a research project on all these machineries, you know, they ask you something, and if there is a, a little bit of oscillation in your voice, they try to detect that you are hiding something. The lesson is not tell the truth, but learn to lie And it's a great thing. It took me long years. You know, I look you into the eye and I say a lie with total sincerity and so on. Like, then I will do the serious stuff. Don't be afraid. But to tell you how I succeeded with this. I was in the United States two, three weeks ago (coughs) for ten days. And now that there is more severe control on immigration, I wanted to avoid... That nightmare, especially on JFK, Terminal 1, or which, because usually the same time as flights from Europe, some flights from China and elsewhere arrive, and nothing against them. The point is then it takes two to three hours, at least. So, I did something. I called Lufthansa and said I have a terrible pain in my knee, and so on. And it was wonderful. <laughs> At the exit of the plane, a guy was waiting for me with a wheelchair. <laughs> Thirteen to fourteen minutes after the plane touched ground, I was already in a taxi. And I felt so good, you know. And you know what's the... I only made one mistake, typical of my primitive Balkan spirit. When we approached a taxi stand, I saw there only one taxi and I saw some other people coming. So I couldn't resist it, forget about me being crippled. I grabbed my baggage and started to run towards <laughs> attacks. So the guy gave me like a perplexed look or whatever, no? No, I'm quite serious. The The worst thing is when you lie, lie you know, in, remember, my boss, at least this we should learn from Trump, you know. I say you are dead. You say, no, I'm alive. You can see it. I, you should just, if somebody shows you something that empirically uh, falsifies it. You should say something like shamelessly, no, it doesn't mean anything. You totally miss the point. Then if the guy proves you wrong with details, you should answer something like, why are you now redirecting the debate into the details? <laughs> you know, I, okay, but let's not lose time. Let's be a little bit more serious. Uh, to disappoint you, today the topic is back at abstraction and so on. And if you want all that uh, uh, multiple or sex absolute, you get it in, on Wednesday. <coughs> it will be a little bit more boring, mostly on subjectivity, <coughs> abstract subject. It's, the title could be, so please don't be bored, uh, uh, Defense of Abstraction. I want to rehabilitate the notion of abstraction. In all versions which oppose abstraction, it can be this holistic one, you know, uh, we are always part, embedded in a totality, or, or in a pseudo-Marxist one, uh, the direct reference or relying on some form of concrete totality is misleading. So I would like to begin, I hope I didn't already use this here, <coughs> with a political paradox. I like when you find in newspapers, among the news, some minor data which are nonetheless I think which tells so tell so much this data about the weird predicament we are in. Uh, 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 the US military, I read, is now searching for, and this is not a joke, I will read you a long quote, for bullets which would be biodegradable and they would contain seeds for new plants to grow where the bullet hits the ground. You don't believe me, here is the quote. Firearms are an accepted part of modern warfare and military operations. But after the job is done, the environment suffers. Not only do spent shells and casings litter the landscape, but they can also prove to be a hazard for local wildlife, not to mention the impact that chemical residues such as bullet metals and rust can have on future plant growth and sustainability. The US military recognizes that this is a problem and is now asking for proposals to mitigate the issue through biodegradable bullets and ways to seed growth as operations in the field continue. Already back in January 2017, the U.S. Department of Justice sent out a public request for proposals to develop biodegradable training ammunition, loaded with specialized seeds to grow environmentally beneficial plants that eliminate uh, 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 ammunition, debris and contaminants. This effort will make use of seeds to grow environmentally friendly plants that remove soil contaminants and consume the biodegradable components developed under this project. Animals should be able to consume the plants without any ill effects. End of quote. So these bullets are first to be used for training and then for real warfare. So imagine bombing a country to make it green, full of plants, with no waste left on the ground. The same structure, the thing itself is the remedy against the threat it poses, is uh, widely visible in today's ideological landscape. Take the figure of financier and philanthropist George Soros. Soros stands for the most ruthless financial speculative exploitation, combined with its counter-agent the humanitarian worry about the catastrophic social consequences of the unbridled market economy. Even his daily routine is marked by a self-eliminating counterpoint. Half of his working time is devoted to financial speculations and the other half to humanitarian activities such as providing finances for cultural and democratic uh, (coughs) causes in post-communist countries writing essays and books and so on, which ultimately fight the effects of his own speculation. The two faces of Bill Gates parallel, the two faces of Soros. The cruel businessman destroys or buys out competitors, aims at virtual monopoly, employs all the tricks of the trade. Meanwhile, Bill Gates as the greatest philanthropist in the history of mankind asks questions like, it's a quote from Bill Gates, what does it serve to have computers if people do not have enough to eat and are dying of (laughs) dysentery and so on? Okay, I don't have time to develop this now, but what I want to draw your attention to is uh, this paradox, how now today's corporations learn to develop their own pseudo-leftist, should I call them, uh, organic intellectuals like Bill Gates, Elon Musk, uh, Jeff Bezos, and so on. They even flirt with the idea that uh, uh, capitalism cannot survive the way we know it, we need some kind of socialism, and so on, and so on. What interests me is this coincidence of the opposites. How? Again, the very agent of destruction, if you want can be, offers itself, himself, herself, as a cure, as a cure uh, against it. And we find this phenomenon uh, at different levels, and that's where the old right is winning, drawing attention to this. For example, uh, did you read the recent interview, it's very interesting, by Steve Bannon in Der Spiegel, You know what's the interesting part? Uh, The guy who interviews him in his office finds a book on the table. You know which book this is? The Life of Heidegger. And then he asks Steve Bannon, what's this? And Bannon says, quote it, let's go. Spiegel, Bannon, you find also English translation. Bannon says, Heidegger, this is my guy, you know. And he said that that, uh, Heidegger is warning about the dangers of... uh, 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 modern technology, and this is the same fight as his fight. Both are fighting for ordinary people's rights, and uh, I mean, uh, it's quite, it's quite extraordinary these coincidences. Okay, so, uh, but what I will tell you now is another form of this danger. Maybe she, by she I mean Elizabeth Warren, is a hope of the American democratic party although I don't think it's as easy as that she walks a very careful line at the same time neutralizing a more radical left but uh, you maybe follow this scandal no of a scandal okay? it's not a scandal of she did the DNA test is there Cherokee Native American blood in her and I think she deserved what she got because I think Okay, I know the progressive idea. I admit it's not racial purity, I'm not white, I have some Indian or Native American, whatever, blood. But our positions should not be this one. What will be now? That it's nonsense as an ethical ideal. What does this mean? That now, to be a public person, to advance your career, it helps if you have a little bit of non-white blood or whatever. You know who is for me the real hero in all this? Not only Trump predictably made that taste remarks back, but did you read it? The Cherokee Tribal Council rejected her, said, sorry, being one of us is not a question of having like one-tenth of a percent of blood, but it's a question of culture and so on and so on. <laughs> because, you know... <coughs> The danger in this is as if to say the Nazis used this, or American racist, you know. How much uh, black or Native American blood do you have? And I don't think we can, the, the right way is to use this same approach. I think we should simply, strictly ignore it. It's very dangerous to repeat things at this level. But okay, this was just a very brief, easy introduction. Now comes, unfortunately, pure theory. I will uh, then, towards the end, if you survive this, I will go a little bit to explain the Hegelian notion of, of uh, concrete universality into figures like Tom Cruise and why are they idiots and so on, So, to give you a, a promise, because, you know, my point will be, you know, Actors are usually identified by a certain screen persona. Even, and this is not their real personality, but neither it is simply the person they play on screen. For example, John Wayne usually plays a certain guy, and so on and so on. But what interests me really are moments when an actor plays a role against his or her screen persona and this is for me almost the symptomal truth, if out of this standpoint of exception, if you approach through these specific lenses, his other roles you discover strange things. Just briefly, because I will not have time to go into it in detail later. Think about Henry Fonda this is old, you don't know, maybe you saw, it's nonetheless a mega great western, Once Upon a Time in the West. One of the last films by Henry Fonda, where he plays with obvious pleasure a very bad guy. Rapist, sadistic killer, and so on and so on. But I think, it's not just that this, this role is an exception. You should, I think, take it as lenses through which see also his other roles. And then you discover, for example, in one of John Ford's greatest Westerns, Fort Apache, where he plays a righteous principled American general of the American army fighting Native Americans, Indians. From this standpoint you can all of a sudden see also the cruel, brutal dimension of that character. Or, she plays uh, in Young Mr. Lincoln, a movie celebrated very much in the 60s by uh, Cahiers de Cinema. She plays Young Lincoln. But again, from this experience, you can see what is wrong. In his precisely good persona. Another example, and I met him once through Ray Fiennes, and he laughed, but I think he was a little bit uncomfortable about it. He was Ben Kingsley. I told him, forget Gandhi. I told him, I like you in Love Beast, you saw Love Beast, where he's an extremely, so ridiculously evil, brutal character. And I told him, what if through the lenses of this weird guy we approach, uh, we, approach, <coughs> uh, we approach, for example, Gandhi? And read Gandhi's biography, you will discover a whole series of very strange features of Gandhi. He was not as innocent as, uh, you know, incidentally, my Indian anti-Gandhi friend told me a nice detail. You know, Gandhi was all the time to protest making hunger strikes and so on, you know. You know which was his last hunger strike? Workers did organize a strike against one of Gandhi's billionaire big industrial friends. And he went on hunger strike to stop the strike against the biggest But what I want to say is that, but you see my principle, you have a certain universality, a nice... Character And the properly dialectical thing is to take the exception and use it as a key to bring out the other covered up, uh, more evil, also universal dimensions. Another example, now I come to uh, the guy Tom Cruise. Did you see his film, it's some 20 years old already, uh, uh, Magnolia's where he plays an extremely disgusting guy, a guy who is basically, if I remember correctly, organizing some training of sex, how to seduce easily women with all the vulgarity, like the whole point is to fuck them. And I had this idea, but maybe this is his true self, you know what I mean? And we should read all his noble parts and so on and so on through the lenses of this. And now you will say, but what am I talking here? What has this to do with historical materialism? Ah, it has. Because I'm just applying Marx to this topic. (laughs) That's Marxist theories of capitalism. Capitalism is for Marx a weird, exceptional, paradoxic mode of production. It's based on instability, self-destructive, and so on. (laughs) Like... One obvious thing. What and this is great about capitalism, what for other modes of production is an abnormal state instability and so on. For capitalism is the normal state. Capitalism is the exception. And Marx is not a teleological philosopher. He is not saying all the history points towards capitalism. He says that capitalism exploded For quite contingent reasons, in a certain specific constellation, it's an exception, a pathological formation. But as such, it provides the clue for all others. You know, to give you another example, there is a wonderful passage from Grundrisse. You can easily download it, locate it in the English translation. (coughs) When Marx talks, and that's the crucial distinction, about... (coughs) The concept of labor, where he says, of course, labor is a universal category. It existed in all societies from, I don't know where, maybe the earliest, maybe not, if you count gathering, hunting as uh, labor. But the point is, labor is a universal category. But then Marx uses a wonderful, ambiguous expression. Very Hegelian. He says that, although in all societies there is labor, so in this sense it's a universal notion, only with capitalism labor becomes universal in real practice, an expression like that. That is to say, only with capitalism, when you work, you are not just participating in a universal activity, But you relate to yourself as universal. Because in market economy, you don't identify yourself with a certain type of labor. You can change labor, change job, whatever. The point is that you relate to yourself as universal. You are not what you immediately are you experience yourself as universal, which means ultimately indifferent towards particular forms of activity. And it can be demonstrated in a nice way that, that uh, the same goes for desire and for subjectivity itself, I'm tempted to say. That in the same way, <coughs> of course, This is where the usual critiques of Cartesian subjectivity are wrong when they claim... I'm now developing, writing a text uh, uh, against a guy who benevolently, but nonetheless... And maybe you should read it... Uh, Unfortunately, I think it's not translated into English. A guy called Frank Fischbach, a French Deleuzean Marxist who criticizes my reference to Cartesian Cogito, claiming that Cogito as abstract subject, the title of his book is sans objet, without object. He claims that only in modern bourgeois society with market economy and the reign of abstraction is such a universal subject Cogito deprived of all particularities, is such an object imaginable. Outside modern society, people always experienced themselves as rooted in concrete circumstances. So that's his argument against me, that by privileging, celebrating Cartesian cogito, I, ha ha ha, reproduce the structure of commodification, where abstraction rules, and so on, and so on. But I think we can easily answer him. First, I think that with subject, if you are strictly a Marxist, it's exactly the same as with labor. Yes, of course, there was no subject prior to modernity, but it was there in the same sense as as universal labor was there. Only with capitalist modernity, a universal dimension which was in itself potentially there, became, became explicit, became posited as such. So I think you see the paradox. Capitalism is... Something exceptional, pathological, and so on, but its meaning is universal. It's not just one among, precisely because of its pathological character, in the sense of structural imbalance, instability, and so on and so on. It's, uh, it has this, <coughs> it is, uh, to use Marx, a universal clue for all modes of production. Because, as Marx put it, class struggle only with capitalism it becomes visible as such. Prior to capitalism, class struggle was just one among, <coughs> no, was always covered up as estates, different hierarchies, not class struggle as such. Second approach. Now, of this moment, I'm almost uh, uh, a little bit proud. Uh, I want to give it to you. uh, Second aspect of class struggle, no, sorry, of uh, abstract subjectivity, it's that, but Lacan's position is not, here is a great difference between Lacan and Alain Badiou. Badiou's formula is subject without object. She uses it. For Lacan, there is no subject without object. Every subjectivity has to rely on Object ultimately on object cause of desire. I will not go into uh, more complexities here. I will just give you, repeat an old joke, but it's a new interpretation. (coughs) I used it years ago. It's a joke used among others by uh, Derrida and others. Uh, Here you can see in what sense the Lacanian subject uh, implies relies on an object you know it's an old joke like in a in a synagogue on I don't know when they gather, Saturday, Sunday I think it's Sabbath. Uh, believers gather and each of them makes, ok they don't have a confession a speech, whatever, public and first a rich mighty rabbi says, oh dear God I'm nobody, I'm not worthy of your attention I'm not nobody then a rich merchant stands up and says, Oh, dear God, I'm also nobody, not worthy your attention, and so on. Then a poor zoo stands up and says, God, I'm also a nobody. And then the rich merchant kicks the rich rabbi and says, But who is this guy who simply can say that he is also a nobody, you know, and so on? You know what is right here? This idea that... To be a nobody implies you should ask and this is what Lacan calls de jouir, surplus enjoyment object. <laughs> what particular libidinal profit do you get precisely from proclaiming yourself a nobody? Now I will give you to provoke you a very problematic example. I was often attacked for it. How in our West just ask yourself, Western societies, just ask yourself a simple question. What, uh, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> which social groups are allowed to assert their particular identity? And I claim, and I am not the only one to notice it, uh, that the more you go towards the marginals, the oppressed, the more you are allowed, like in the United States, if you are, uh, whatever you call it, Native American, Indian, whatever, I will not go into my old jokes why I find these titles problematic, it's wonderful if you dance your tribal dances, blah, blah, all that bullshit. If you are black, it's okay. Although, like if you are uh, Muslim Brotherhood black, problems can begin. With Asians, Japanese, Chinese, it's okay. Uh, and so on and so on. Italy, still tolerable, but then the more we move, you know, like Scandinavians, Germans, eh, eh, if a white Protestant say, wants to say, let's assert our identity, you are the worst racist, and so on. Now, what do I find problematic here? And incidentally, uh, there is, of course, a truth in it. But I am not here praising white supremacists. I am claiming that precisely when they renounce their specific identity and claim we are guilty for all, we don't have the right to assert our identity, they assert themselves all the more as universal, secretly. I'm not allowed to practice my rights means I am universal. And you know where you can see this universality. In how they, I witnessed this dozens of times. In what arrogant way white guys at university panels teach others what is the right thing to do. For example, I was with some Native Americans, and they were all the time interrupted by the white gay. No, what you are saying now, you are reproducing white clichés, and so on. Don't talk like this, call yourself that, and so on, and so on. That's that's the secret profit. You know, I claim to be universal, but always ask what particular surplus enjoyment is provided by the very renunciation to my particular... Uh, to my particular identity. So, <clears throat> again, my position is not there is some pure Cartesian subject. One always has to ask which is the object small a, the little bit of enjoyment which sustains me in this subjectivity. And there are wonderful, indescribably wonderful jokes which play with this For example, recently in New York, my Jewish friend, Udi Aloni, don't be afraid, he is now transferring his flat on uh, his daughter and uh, moving all his modest money to American banks. You know why? In Israel, he told me, things are getting so tough now that you are in any way associated to BDS or Consider two pro Palestinians, even if you are my friend is pure as pure as he can be Jew, you can be uh, all your property and money can be taken from you because the idea is if you support BDS you are hurting Israeli economy, this is criminal activity, so you should be so that you will not consider him a bad Zionist, but he is a deeply spiritual uh, Jewish person, and he told me an absolutely wonderful joke don 't be afraid this time. no trigger warning. there is nothing dirty in it no no pinnaces, no balls hanging whatever it 's a theological one. You should just take into account one thing that uh, in these circumstances uh, 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 no, this joke refers to this old <coughs> old uh, Notion, popular from the 50s onwards, I forgot who wrote even a book on it, that God died at Auschwitz, you know. The horror there was too horrible, it's a darkness. God was not there. He couldn't have allowed, no? So, the story is this one. In paradise, after they were burned in Auschwitz, a couple of Jews, there is a nice, Forest, meadow, trees there, a couple of Jews seats there at the bench, and uh, amuse themselves by telling uh, ridiculous stories uh, about accidents that happened to them when they were burned in Auschwitz. But as jokes, like one says, do you remember what happened to you? When you were marching towards the gas oven, you slipped and broke your... (laughs) Uh, your 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 head, and you died even before you were. The, you know this, and and then they all laugh. <laughs> that was so funny, and now comes very sublime joke. Uh, God tired after all his work, drops by, walks around, listens to it, and said, "Sorry guys, I don't understand this. What's the joke, no?" And one of the Jews deceased steps towards God. Patronizingly embraces him and says, Don't worry, of course you cannot understand because you were not there. <laughs> you, know, because, you know what I like so much in these jokes? It's not the humanist point, oh, God was not there. <clears throat> no, God can well understand uh, the suffering there. God cannot understand how you can make a joke out of it. The joke, the joke was the Jewish surplus enjoyment there. And I must admit that um, the greatest tragedy of the trend which goes on now in Israel is that they, this is what made one among the things that made Jews so great. This incredible ability to find irony even in the most desperate situations. I will not even bother you about how many jokes they have, Polish Jews, about themselves suffering in World War II and so on and so on. So, uh, You see, always look for this, let's call it a symptomal point. So, again, when I talk about a a universal subject, always remember that I'm not talking about an empty subject as it were hanging in the air. This subject, I admitted that the operation of subjectivity is... Lacan, Hegel used this metaphor, Uh, you know, how to translate it into English, this uh, Baron Minkhausen stories about how he is almost drowning in a swamp with his horse, and then you know how he saves himself. He pulls himself up, you know. Of course, in material reality this is not possible. But in, I don't want to use this term in an idealist way, This is precisely what happens in what Hegel calls self-relationship, spirituality, if you want. But again, I'm not an idealist here. Always look for specific material constellations in which this explodes. So now, vaguely, I wanted to describe two things to you. First, uh, because I I explain it to you now implicitly, Hegelian distinction between abstract and concrete universality. Abstract universality is something that simply holds for all epochs. We always work, labor. Concrete universality is not just a concrete form of the universality, in the sense of, uh, yes, but work has different structure in every epoch, and so on, and so on. No, concrete universality is... a concrete singular example in which universality becomes for itself, in which you as a particular entity are not just an example of universality, but you directly relate to yourself as universal. And here, we don't have time to go into it, but nonetheless, here, Lacan's notion of uh, of object A enters. Object A sustains universality because it is precisely the object which is not, even if it appears as such, it's not one among particular objects, but in an object which is just a stand-in for a void, for the impossibility to specify an object. What do I mean by this? Let me give you a simple example. Let's Take another example, which I already used here, I don't know when, probably every time that I was here. uh, With all appreciation, nobody will accuse me now that I'm making fun of them. uh, (coughs) LGBT plus. You know my standard point, no? What is the status of this plus? Is it an empirical plus? Is it meant in a British nominalist way? Which means that, like... We have, you can be a boot, a sadomaso or tri- trisexual, whatever, all the identities. And then you have always this worry, but did we really list all identities? What if a guy comes, oh no, sorry, I'm not that, and another. So let's add a plus, let's be more uh, to to possible future identities we don't yet know about. But, and uh, I warn you, uh, <coughs> This is not a perverse point that I made. Although I'm often decried as making fun of LGBT plus, they are not all stupid. Some of them are very intelligent. And a lady, an Australian lady, I think, I don't know her name here, but I will quote her in my next book, already came to this idea that <clears throat> this notion of plus is not enough. The properly dialectical reversal is that in the same way that you can be A a butch, uh, trisexual, asexual, bigender, whatever you want, you can also directly be a plus as such. This very excess over every identity can again be embodied in a specific identity. Can, like, you know what I mean (coughs) by this? I'll give you a different example. A friend of mine was in analysis with a big Lacanian figure. And he told me something wonderful and simple. He told me that how his analysis was over. He was in analysis for a year, all the time looking for, my God, I'm not satisfied. Should I change? And so on. No, what will happen to me? And then he got at it. Fuck it. Why should I change? I quite like myself the way I am now. And the moment he accepted that no change in his subjective identity is needed, precisely this open attitude of no change was the most radical change. Because, <clears throat> of course, I, uh, of course nothing changed with him. But you get my point. His entire previous existence was under the sign of a possible change. And this for the time being, but I want to be something else, and so on and so on. So you can say this was the way he renounced to his object A. And as I develop in two or three of my books, this uh, excessive element even has three forms, I think, in, uh, or at least two forms in LGBT classification. One is uh, the plus as, uh, as, uh, as asexual. This is a very intelligent point, that... I'm repeating here old joke by Marx when he says that to be a Republican is the only way to be a monarchist in general. uh, Isn't it that the only way to be truly open sexually, not committed to any particular form, is to be asexual? But asexual is still a mode of sexuality. So in this sense, (coughs) one position is be asexual, the other position is questioning questioning in the sense of basic hysterical questioning, which is I think again the most progressive, radical, subversive thing <laughs> you can imagine. I will not go now into repeating my old stuff, but you know this is my eternal motive that one of the worst legacies of sixty eight is the celebration of perversion at the expense of Hysteria. It even had a distinct, although it was not admitted, anti-feminist taste to it. I know I was there, although not too active participant. In '68, we were saying, hysterics are, we didn't say it, but we meant it, crazy women who just provoke a master but don't dare really to subvert the master but just are asking for a new, better master, while perverts go to the end. They do it what hysterics only dream about. For Lacan, no, it's the opposite. As he emphasizes, perversion is always the other obscene side of the power structure itself. Ultimately, there is nothing subversive in perversion. The only truly subversive position is hysterical questioning. Hysteria is, as my friend Mladen Dolar developed 30 years ago already, in a wonderful short text called Beyond Interpellations, if the basic operation of ideology is ideological interpolation, like ideology, the big other telling you, you are this, mother, worker, socialist, whatever you want, deconstructionist. Hysterical questioning is, but why am I what you are telling me that I am? And this is why Lacan says very clearly that even in science, uh, university discourse is not productive. University discourse is the classification of science. Moments of scientific discovery are hysterical, not university discourse. And uh, you can ask him, Frank Ruda will be here tomorrow, in this new book that I also cannot emphasize enough that you should read it, uh, uh, by Rebecca Comey and Frank Ruda Dash about uh, two points in Hegel, the very end of phenomenology and the very beginning of logic, where a dash occurs at a crucial point. So he, Frank Ruda, developed something. You know, I'm really mad at guys who do this, because it's such a simple, deep insight that you are mad at yourself. Fuck him, it's so simple, why didn't I see it, you know? His first point is that if you... Discount minor texts. Hegel really wrote only two books, Phenomenology and Logic. And it's very mysterious how to (coughs) distinguish them. Of course there are passages and so on, but it's real parallax distinction. In the sense that you can pass in the topic conceptually from one to the other, but The line of separation somehow eludes clear distinction, but then he said something else, and here I made a short critical remark in New York, on a round table with him, and he tried to squeeze out. I don't think he succeeded, but you can ask him tomorrow. Namely, he said that (coughs) the other two books by Hegel, (coughs) uh, Philosophy of Right and Encyclopedia, are pure university discourse. They are manuals for university teaching and already the way they are written, it's not this hysterically engaged uncertainty, producing new insights. They are reports on a knowledge already established. They just resume report something that happened somewhere else. You see, this would be again in Hegel if you want the clear difference although again my critique was as an old Stalinist bureaucrat that don't ar- underestimate encyclopedia and, and philosophy of right don't fall into this trap we just need this creative spirit and so on of phenomenology and logic no we should heroically learn to assume also the bureaucratic philosophy teaching university teach because it's incredible how, although they should be non-creative, how many wonderful things you discover in, even in late Hegel, in Encyclopedia, it is as if, while Hegel pretends just to report what he already developed elsewhere, all of a sudden you get wonderful precise uh, formulations and so on. But to go back, so, uh, (coughs) sorry, we have this questioning, and Lacanian object A is exactly like this plus it's an object which gives body to the very excess in desire over every object which we can also see I don't have time to go into it now why for Lacan uh, the crucial source in his work of surplus enjoyment is Marxist surplus value (laughs) Uh, That is to say how uh, uh, the very surplus over objectivity reappears as an object. This happens in capitalism, which is why only in capitalism also the abstract subject can emerge. Now, let's return to the reproach that I mentioned. You will say, but again, doesn't this mean that when, if, capitalist alienation will be overcome?
0: There will be no surplus.
1: Yeah, that's the problem. (laughs) What will happen? I think that uh, there is no way back. Once this explodes, this s- s- surplus as such, with all the instabilities that capitalism implies, you know, no, capitalism always wants more. Sur- at, uh, maybe something totally different will emerge. But we cannot return to the old concrete organic unity. So in this sense, I think we should maybe even move here further from Marx, because as you said, yes, with Marx, I think you have sometimes this illusion that you can have the, this permanent expansion, let's move further, develop more and more, without surplus object, without capitalist surplus uh, profit, and so on and so on things are getting very complex here but this doesn't matter what I want to say again is that uh, I want to defend here again in this sense the abstract subjectivity uh, perfect no problem I just wanted to check because there is answer. ah it's there sorry I don't have to do this unpleasant Impolite gesture. I saw it now there. Okay. Now I will do the second part and then Brecht. No, sorry, uh, Beckett, who is who is my real hero. You know, I developed it in a text. Was it the one which was finally published by, <coughs> digitally by Independent? I found in Beckett the most wonderful formula you can imagine. He said that something always ultimately divides into itself. I think this is the true Hegelian formula. Not the Maoist bullshit, one divides into two. No, to become fully what you are is always a division. Because you have to exclude something. Now, how does this apply to the divided subject? Please have a little bit patience and let 's go through let 's go through Judith butler I will try to i want to control in a confront sorry in a very i want to con- no 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 i don 't have any problem here my god i 'm an old totalitarian you know if i hate this is why to uh, now you will really hate me I am all for opening ourselves up more to the <coughs> Refugees, but in a controlled way. Strictly registered everything and so on. I had in Germany an interesting debate with immigrants, and it was that period, you remember, two, three years ago, when the dream was Norway, no? We want to go to Norway. At the same time, they said, we are not cattle, we don't want to be registered and so on. But I told them, but are you crazy? Norway, and I know the situation there, is the most controlled state you can imagine. Everybody is registered precisely to guarantee your rights, you know. Like, the state takes care of everything. So, okay. (coughs) Sorry. This is why... And then I had another debate with them, and it slipped. I didn't think about it. I wonder, a political improvisation, if you would agree with it. My good friend who will soon go further than me, I envy her, she should drop that, because she is too good, she's really now, with her last book, What is Sex? Exploring New Territory. She recently did an interview in Slovenia, where she proposed a line of argumentation against anti-immigrant racists, which I think work, can work perfectly. His idea was, you know, anti-immigrants claim. We, who want to be open towards immigrants, we are weak, despising ourselves, not able to assert ourselves. But the anti-immigrant right are proud people, ready to protect, defend their country. His idea was, in political debate, to turn this around. His idea was, isn't Angela Merkel, insofar as she did some good thing, inviting immigrants, isn't she the only true, proud nationalist and believer in German greatness? Because only if you really trust yourself can you say, come here, you are not a threat to us, we will be able. You know what? Trust in... And her point is that, on the other hand, we should not admit, concede to the... Alternative for Germany or all those. No they, are, they're, they're, no, they are not strong. What kind of a strength is this like Trump today when some hundred, uh, some hundred uh, a colon refugees is approaching and you are all in a panic? Sorry, this is not strength. You don't trust yourself. This is extreme weakness. So don't you agree politically, I like this idea, just to provoke, that we should stand No! If you are like Corbyn once said, uh, immigrants are open, this is true great belief in Britishness and so on, you know, and uh, all those Boris Johnson guys, they are panicky guys, they are nobody, they don't trust the greatness of British nation. You see my point, that, that we should strike them where it hurts, we shouldn't accept the way they taint us, this humiliating, you know, oh, you are weak, you feel guilty, no, Our attitude should be, we feel great. We Europeans, although we screwed it up with racism, we invented some great thing, open, multiculturalism, human rights, and we should be proud of it. And that's why we welcome immigrants. You are the real cowards. Okay, let's go on. So uh, I said Judith Butler, Lacan, subjectivity. What does this mean? This will be, I warn you, a little bit more... uh, Theoretical. Uh, recently, I reread that, I call it Triple Orgy book uh, Ernesto, Judith, and Me, Universality, Hegemony, whatever. And I think that only now I was able to formulate in a precise way my accusation. Once I told this to her, and she was so mad at me like, if Luke would have been able to kill. Uh, I accused her of being uh, not even covered, but a liberal, basically a liberal. And this is the worst thing you can say to her. Why? Let's go through it. Uh, Butler's starting point is that both Lacan and herself, Judy Butler, they both endorse the premise that the process of interpolation, symbolic identification, of The subject is incomplete. Our identity is never fixed, always open. However, the precise status of this incompleteness is different. For Butler, the part of subjectivity excluded or ignored by interpolation is historically variable and as such submitted to possible change. The ignored or excluded part can be reintegrated into subject symbolic identity. You get the point, it's a very simple one. For Butler, the hegemonic, patriarchal, binary, heterosexual normativity excludes totally or puts in a subordinate position other sexual (laughs) identities. So, the task of progressive struggle is to bring all that excluded insight <clears throat> From uh, such a reading, Lacan's bar, the bar of exclusion, impossibility, of division, that divides the subject, cannot but appear as an ahistorical, transcendental a priori, indifferent to political struggles for hegemony, because that's her reproach to Lacan. Lacan remains a Kantian, you know, like the Kantian bar that separates phenomena from the in itself, a part is a priori excluded. The bar that divides the subject is eternalized. A substantial quote from Judith Butler. The notion of the uncompleted or barred subject appears to guarantee a certain incompletion of interpellation. You call me this, but what I am eludes the semantic reach of any such linguistic effort to capture me. Is this eluding of the call of the other accomplished through the installation of a bar as the condition and structure of all subject constitution? Is the incompleteness of subject formation that hegemony recognizes, one in which the subject in process is incomplete precisely because it is constituted through exclusions that are politically salient, not structurally static or foundational, and if this distinction is wrong headed, how are we to think those constituting exclusions that are structural and foundational together with those we take to be politically salient to the movement of hegemony? In other words, should we uh, uh, Should not the incompletion of subject formation be linked to the democratic Contestation over signifiers. Can the ahistorical recourse to the Lacanian bar be reconciled with the strategic question that hegemony poses, or does it stand as a quasi-transcendental limitation of all possible subject formations and strategies, and hence, as fundamentally indifferent to the political field it is set to condition? End of quote. So the subject Butler talks about here, I claim, remains the liberal subject. The subject engaged in the process of continuously expanding the content of his, her, its identifications. A last short quote from Butler. My understanding of hegemony is that its normative and optimistic moment consists precisely in the... possibilities for expanding the democratic possibilities of, for the key terms of liberalism, rendering them more inclusive, more dynamic, and more concrete. Here I oppose her. I think that her vision of subject is simply, subject is potentially open or all-inclusive, and there are some historical contingent limitations like in heterosexual normativity some practices are excluded and so on and so on but the struggle is simply the struggle for continuous expansion of what is excluded subject is not divided as it were in its very uh, as Hegel would have put it in its very concept I, why, so why, why this. I think that first, <coughs> uh, let me try to explain it. It is a philosophical topic. First, I think that <coughs> uh, uh, Butler tries to play the card of historicism. Like Lacan is a Kantian, a historicist, then is an a priori bar, which excludes something, but no every bar which excludes something can be historically renegotiated and we can expand it and so on and so on. Uh, Why I don't agree with it? First, I think that we have strictly to distinguish here between historicism and historicity proper. The historicist position is this one, an unending process, everything can be changed and so on and so on. But as Marx made it clear, From a proper dialectical Hegelian standpoint, uh, there is history, not because simply things change, you know, everything in nature changes now, this is prohibited today, tomorrow another thing is prohibited, but uh, things change because we are always dealing with the same basic antagonism. Why is there class struggle, different modes of formation? Because again we live in a class society where classes are the class bar is irreducible and then we try to cope with it in different levels and so on and so on. So you see, the idea and I already made this idea and sorry if I recapitulate it briefly apropos Fred Jameson's I know I talked about this here three, four times. Fred Jensen's wonderful criticism of the idea of alternate modernities. Like, you know, we have uh, that we in the West, when we talk about modernity, we privilege our capitalist modernity. But the idea is why couldn't other parts of the world propose an alternate modernity, which would not be our capitalist liberal modernity? That was the hope of Latin America. This was already Nehru hope in India, and so on. We can have our own modernity. Benson absolutely, unambiguously rejects this option. Why? His point is that, <coughs> that uh, this view is ahistorical in the sense that it makes, uh, capita- it makes uh, capitalist alienation, antagonism, just a specific moment that can be avoided. What do I mean by this? Uh, uh, Jameson says that when we talk modernity, we basically talk about uh, capitalism. And the dream of alternate capitalism is precisely the dream that there can be another capitalist modernity which would somehow avoid all the bad parts, to put it naively antagonism, social disability, and so on and so on. In this sense, as Jameson hints it, we in Europe already had in the first half of the uh, 20th century one big alternate modernity. It's called fascism. Fascism is precisely alternate modernity. We can have modernity, industry, everything, without liberalism, without social antagonisms, and so on, and so on. So what's the mistake of this idea of alternate modernity? It historicizes too easily capitalist antagonism. It doesn't see that antagonism, instability, class struggle, is part of the very concept of modernity. You cannot say we'll do it in another way. That's the ultimate ideological dream. In other words, now I come to my point. uh, Of course there are alternate modernities. We have liberal capitalist modernity. We have fascist modernity. We have populist modernity, whatever. But properly Marxist idea is this one. They are all different ways to cope with a certain truly universal traumatic antagonism the antagonism that defines, characterizes the capitalist mode of production. So you see the beauty. The tension is not between particular versions of capitalism, but between every particular form of capitalism and its universal antagonism. Every particular form of capitalism tries to gentrify, control, reduce the tension which is inscribed into the very notion of capitalism. And this is my formula for every historicism, Historic, uh, for proper historicity. <clears throat> As Marx made it clear, historicity is not an abstract historicity. Historicity, things change because they are grounded based on an ahistorical antagonism. Now, this antagonism is not ahistorical in an absolute sense. But nonetheless, it is trans-historical in the sense that it is the forum of the historicity in which we live today. And so, I don't have time to go further into it, but my I would have said my point here would have been that In this sense, when Lacan speaks about a divided subject, he's raising a much more subtle point. His point is, of course, everything changes, we have different uh, versions of subjectivity, and of course, every concrete subjectivity excludes something, includes something else. But in order precisely to have this field of possible historical changes, there has to be some more basic exclusion. Now, Judith Butler will enter and say, "Exclusion of what?" Ah, here comes the beautiful Lacanian answer: exclusion of nothing. That is to say, it's not that some substantial content is excluded. Not even in the pseudo-Freudian way, the um, the incest or whatever. No. Uh, uh, it's uh, simply that <coughs> uh, we have to have what Freud in precise terms called uh, Urverdrängung, primordial repression, which is the entrance into the very form of historicity. For in order in human history for things to change, to be dynamic, and so on and so on, something is excluded, not a particular thing, but Precisely, what is excluded is being at home in a certain situation. It's the form of, how should I put it, the form of home or being rooted in something itself is excluded. What Lacan calls, uh, this is why Miller developed this nicely uh, long ago, when he was still good theor- theorist, when he says that the ultimate division of the subject is not between this and that, between something and something, but between something and nothing. And I don't have time to jump through all of this now, but I would say that uh, this nothing is the subject itself, in some sense. The paradox of the subject is that the moment you have a subject, the something is not all. There is a crack in the order of some things. It's precisely, again, the structure of plus that we get. Plus does not stand for some primordial object of desire which is excluded. Plus simply means that there is always a gap, that the list of objects is never uh, complete, and so on, and so on, all that stuff. Okay, I spoke too long, so uh, maybe I will just give you a quick I will again, if you are properly enrolled through Lou or whoever, I propose to do the same, I mean into this class, and if obviously I talk too much and will not be able to, I propose to do the same thing that I promise and even, so strange that I don't lie, do it every year. I will send the chapter or two to you so that you can get the whole line of argumentation. So we don't have time for it now. Let me just quickly come to Beckett. Uh, Beckett is for me the great writer of abstraction, of this uh, positive character of abstraction. Why? I recently read. Uh, <coughs> sorry. <coughs> uh, I recently read a wonderful book on uh, on. Uh, Do I uh, Beckett? Uh, Maybe you know the name, the Emily Morin, M-O-R-I-N, ten years old book, Beckett and Politics. Uh, uh, It was given to me, a pirated copy, of course. What I like in this book is that, on the one hand, it demonstrates very convincingly how all work of Beckett is... Totally impregnated, penetrated by political references. For example, (coughs) his great post World War II novels, exemplarily Malone Dies. You cannot understand their context if you don't go into the specific situation, you know, 45, 6, (coughs) when millions of refugees, emigrants, were returning home. They were homeless. And there was an immense bureaucracy of how to register them, uh, 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 dispense with them, take care. All that is the background of that weird universe of Malone dies and so on and so on. And, okay, I will not give you all the examples, but, but now comes the crucial point. What Beckett does is that Although, again, you learn a lot if you simply get this thick background, which is incidentally incredibly interesting. For example, do you know how much Beckett was throughout the 50s involved in black anti-racist struggle and so on? It's incredible. But nonetheless, it would be wrong to apply mechanically a pseudo-Marxist rule and claim, yes, but doesn't Beckett mystify it? Instead of giving a clear report of a specific situation, Western Europe, the confusion after the end of the World War II, millions, literally, of displaced persons, concrete situations, hospitals, prisons, temporary camps, how to dispel them, how to uh, uh, relocate them, he abstracts it into some kind of a general idea of, uh, of Uh, abstract, homeless, anxiety, horror, and so on. But I think that precisely this is Beckett's strength, that the truth is not this false concrete. When you make an abstraction like like this, Beckett is a materialist platonist. From all these concrete experiences, uh, refugees, prisons, during Vichy, terror and Nazi occupation of France, confusion afterwards, and so on and so on. He, Beckett, abstracts the almost platonic idea of homeless horror or whatever. And that's now the key point. This is not a mystification of concrete forms of horror, but it's... The very forum of horror, which is subjectively, in a way, more true than, than concrete horrors. The, how? I will give you another example, which I wanted to develop. We'll not have time. Uh, it's a very short one. You get it, five, six, seven versions on YouTube. The one which is the shorter one, uh, shortest one and most famous is not even the best directed by David Mehmet, with even Harold Pinter playing the director. It's catastrophe. A short, late play, uh, dedicated to Vaclav Havel, but uh, uh, make it more tricky, intelligent here. You know, Havel was condemned in Czechoslovakia by the communist regime, and then there was a big festival, whatever, a celebration in the West, celebrating Havel, and you know what happens in this play, which Beckett wrote for this occasion? Beckett begins with what describes as a tough interrogation of an actor. There are just three persons, I think. Director, actor, and his secretary, who write things down. Uh, so first level is, oh my God, they are questioning terror. Then you learn quickly that this is not really a police interrogation, but a director staging a scene of police interrogation. Because he said, no, this doesn't look good. Change his dress a little bit, put, put his sleeves, pull his sleeves up a little bit, and <coughs> so on and so on. And then the most magic moment is the very ending. When, uh, after people applaud, also we in the hall who witness this performance, the, priest, the actor who plays the prisoner, (coughs) no, the actor who plays an actor who plays the prisoner, raises his head and looks at us directly. The idea being a very subtle one of a formal parallel between real police interrogation, the way a movie, sorry, theater director terrorizes actors, and the way we humanitarians enjoy this perversely this game of oh we sympathize with the guy being terrorized there and so on and so on basically this play is uh, critical of Havel himself but again in this subtle way like always from a concrete experience abstract the general form of here brutal interrogation and then abstract it into an idea and which should warn you how how dangerous it is to repeat the very thing that you can that you are apparently condemning through staging it in a certain way. And, uh, Beckett explicitly made this point where he said that the ultimate target is neither the terror of uh, theater practice nor police interrogation as such but Precisely, the false, potentially terrorist dimension of these humanitarian spectacles where you express uh, sympathy and so on and so on. So here I, again, the crucial point here is to see how this abstraction is not, as some primitive pseudo-Marxist would have put it, a primitive uh, ideological abstraction, like, the concrete circumstances are obliterated and so on and so on. No, this split between content and form, this excess of the form over content is part of reality itself. In reality itself already, form is active in excess over the uh, concrete content. And I think this is precisely Marx's position. I'm getting a little bit... uh, Stupid, tired, so why don't we stop now? It's mm-hmm. one hour twenty five, yeah. and we pretend for some minutes that <laughs> that we live in democracy, you no? Know? So, if you want to ask some questions, no, 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 wait, uh, we will do it. If you want, again, three things just to finish. If you want to get, because I'm now writing something on jacket, I'm always a little bit retarded in delay. But I like to relate Beckett. Three things I propose you to read by Beckett. Okay, Unnamable is the greatest, but it's almost too sublime, I cannot. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, Malone dies, and already, do you know the title? I'm so stupid. His first after World War II novel... Mercier and Camier, something like this, two names. It was published only in ni- 1970. It's also it's the point, two guys want to go to a trip traveling, but then how the idea of traveling movement is gradually abstracted from all. This one, then, of course, the absolute one is Malone dies, where you can feel this context, concrete historical, but at the same time you feel how this context it's wrong to reduce it just in a historicist way to that context. You know, even uh, the late Lukács got it. You know, George Lukács was very critical of of uh, uh, Kafka, in contrast to Brecht, who didn't. Brecht said that the Kafka is the only true Marxist writer or whatever. But what I want to say is that <coughs> that's the, probably a myth, but a beautiful myth. That's, you know... Lukács collaborated in 56th uprising against the Soviets and he was then uh, arrested and kept for almost a year with others in a castle in in Romania. And the myth is that he said there, my God, Kafka was right. This is like Kafka's castle, (laughs) you know, the way he was there. So again, uh, maybe I will go on a little bit more on Wednesday. The idea here is that of the proper efficiency of abstraction. Let me give you a concluding remark. All normal people know, here I'm a traditional lover of European classical music, that the greatest song collection is, of course, Schubert Winterreise, Winter Journey. And uh, do you know the first song? You just learned that the guy goes on winterize, on a winter journey, abandoning the house where his beloved was. And I refer here to, isn't this a British tenor, who is also not an idiot, Ian Bostrich? He wrote a wonderful book, 500 pages on winterize, and he demonstrates wonderfully how, <coughs> why did the idiot at the beginning leave the home where his beloved was there are hints that he rejected him he was afraid to commit himself parents threw him out but, but the whole point is that if you try to reduce it to a concrete situa- to a concrete situation you miss it the truth is in this in this uh, abstraction itself this is i think the basic dialectical point again the strength, the, not that the strength is too pathetic, the symbolic efficiency, actuality of abstraction itself. What do you lose if you simply translate abstraction? For example, apropos Malone dies, if you say, forget about all those mysticism, you should know we are in France, 46, and so on and so on. No, this is not the truth. The truth is precisely in the, Abstraction itself. Now I really shut up, and we are in democracy.
0: Okay, we've got some time for questions, and we ask you to use the microphones, and and <coughs> Lisa have them because it's it's being recorded. <coughs>
1: ah, I, oh, you need this one. Okay. Here. Uh,
0: yeah. Where should we go? Yeah. Okay.
1: Got... That's good because now in these politically sensitive times. Uh, Sorry, just uh, when I was in New York 10 days ago, there was a debate, and I couldn't control it. There was a mic there, and people were waiting in line, and the first two were men. And instantly, instantly, somebody shouted, why did you exclude women, where are women? And they have absolutely no sense of irony because my instant answer was I excluded women because they are stupid and I hate them <laughs> you cannot say this today if you say this you know there is absolutely no sense of irony sorry uh, uh, th- uh,
0: thanks for the lecture Ray.
1: cut the crap um, throw the knife at me uh, uh, yes. actually there is a book by Evald Ilyenkov which is called The Abstract and the Concrete I know it, it was translated yeah. even in my own language 20, you know that Ilyenkov incidentally loved Wagner
0: yes I do he has an article about him Uh, and uh, uh, interestingly uh, cannot we make this um, shift Uh, what you call (coughs) abstract (coughs) is exactly the concrete because he says yeah but the concrete universality yeah yeah, concrete universality so he says that What can be concrete is only universality, only the general, and the empirical concreteness is abstraction. Absolutely. And then uh, when he he talks about aesthetics, he is exactly talking about this, that direct and straightforward documentation is abstraction, whereas obliqueness Mm -hmm. is the only possible view universally
1: viewing the world is the only possible mm. way to be concrete. Okay, I will put it this so way. So this is Sorry. Yeah. No, no. What I want to say is that here I did not So why use the word
0: abstract? If, if what you call you abstract You know why? I concrete. will tell
1: you why. Because I always quote almost in all of my books that key passage of Hegel, which is usually misunderstood from the, well, one of the best known, from the Forward to Phenomenology, where Hegel surprisingly praises understanding, Verstand, the force of abstraction, the greatest of all forces, the force that can tear apart what in nature belongs together, and so on, and the, the reason I like the term abstraction is that I think uh, it's crucial to note how, for Hegel, I will give you now another example uh, repeating myself, but you were not here, from, uh, I used it two times here, of how it's, To arrive at the actual, not empirical, concrete network, you have to pass through abstraction. Uh, The example I used I'm sorry, you all remember it, I even remember the last time in the other hall, where then uh, Jacqueline Rose corrected me, that at the end, you know, the example from Proust, how he sees his grandmother, no, doesn't see, he hears her voice. And remembering her as a nice, gentle old lady, when he... Uh, Marcel, the hero in one of the novels, not really, when he hears her voice, he all of a sudden notices how her voice is vulgar, common, cracking voice of an old, stupid woman. And now comes the key. Then, when he visits her in Paris, and sees her in reality, uh, this perception of voice abstracted from her totality, colors her entire perception. And she notices she is a stupid old... What I'm saying is that this is the Hegelian concrete universality, that it's always partial. It's not this holistic yin-yang whatever. You take out one element, you abstract it and from this standpoint you see all in a new way. In this sense another Beckett I hope we all agree, maybe the greatest, uh, not I, where you have an even more brutal abstraction to the eye. sorry, to the, to the, to the mouth, mouth alone speaks, and, and uh, 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 Beckett has good taste, if I remember it correctly, although there is also a TV version with Julianne Moore and so on, but you know who was Beckett's uh, favorite actress for this role? Jessica Tandy, the one who plays mother in Hitchcock's uh, Birds, you know, and so on. Uh, but what I want to say is, is yeah, I greatly appreciate Ilenkov, but uh, to tell you something that will maybe fascinate you, Ilenko wasn't, correct me if I'm wrong, that's what I heard, that an extremely tragic figure, because he was something almost unthinkable. He was an honest, sincere Marxist. And he ended up killing himself, I think, no? While you have some other philosophers, do you know his name, who was anti-Marxist, but knows how to... Ma- a historian of philosophy, who did books about medieval thinking and so on. And he survived the dark era by doing the usual thing. In preface, you put in a quote from, from Lenin and whatever. And it's interesting how the guy who was, it's clear from his work, openly a non-Marxist, but just used the excuse of, I'm just doing history of philosophy, to ignore Marxism, he survived. But the one who was the victim, this is just a beautiful sad lesson, was the only almost sincere Marxist, Eval Dilyankov, no? It's... It's a true tragedy. Maybe there should be a colloquium on him. Are you doing it in Moscow? No,
0: it's it's here soon at historical materialism in a few days.
1: Oh, I'm sorry, but I have some misunderstandings there. Don't ask me why. But I don't think that, although I made one talk for them... Nobody, now I will do like talk like a, a black like a dark uh, melodrama. Nobody loves me today, and historical materialism also doesn't love me. No, okay, sorry. <laughs> okay. Got Uh, got that? Can answer, Sorry, can I ask before anyone said yeah.
0: I can't be the only one who's fine, incredibly
1: fun, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Can, Can we open windows? Window. This is uh, this unnatural unnatural fall. In my country Slovenia three days ago it was 23 degrees Celsius. It was an absolute record for this time. That's why I wrote about it. <laughs> Fuck, Europe. <laughs> Move to Svalbard Island, one hour north from north of Norway. <laughs> <laughs> Only place to leave. Although it's more dangerous than you think, because you know that. I'm not kidding, unfortunately. Arctic is now becoming the new Cold War territory. Crazy arm. Okay, I'm losing time, please.
0: So, I have a question that occurred to me when I was reading um, the incontinence of the way, for this yes. lecture. Um, and it's a challenge to um, your idea or the Kepanian idea of the primordial repression yeah. of the binary signifier. Yeah. Because in um, a lot of work by psychoanalytic writers inspired by Jung, um, there's a whole landscape. Young, you mean Jung. Jung.
1: Yeah, so yes, there's a
0: whole landscape of uh, the feminine in the unconscious. And I wondered why we didn't really discuss that in the chat. Because you made a. You did make a. Okay, it's clear
1: why. Before. Because I'm sorry to be so brutal, but in my field, Jung is the ultimate enemy. You know, in what sense? Because. Sorry? Uh, you feel he's he been
0: appropriated
1: by the New Age, Eastern. It's not. Oh, uh, uh, no, 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 I mean. In
0: Western I, uh, no,
1: Europe. first, no. I will not go into all this political stuff and so on. Where obviously, but that's not for me a main argument. I even think there are some people who are close to fascism and are not totally wrong or whatever. But uh, this, uh, you know, the whole idea of uh, first I think Jung really I'm simplifying it to the utmost. But it is as if Jung, I'm simplifying, I repeat it, but nonetheless. Doesn't Jung nonetheless think that if you go deep into human personality, you discover some, let's call it very naively, deeper inner truth. The whole point of Freud is that if you go deep into human personality, you discover the basic fantasy, which is precisely a form of stupidity, the basic lie. There is no, for Freud, there is no deeper truth. But again, going back to this basic point, I'm not saying who is right here, I just find Lacan's idea of this uh, oppression of the (coughs) binary signifier a much more dialectical one, because then the idea is that there is no primordial couple of principles, yin, yang, light, darkness, masculine, feminine, that there is only one, but this one is in itself Incomplete, thwarted, and so on, and that multiplicity enters because of this lack of the one, so my point is that this position I cannot go into it now in detail, of course is in a way much more much more uh, radically feminist. I know it 's fashionable to say we in modernity emphasize too much the masculine principle, we need to assert the feminine principle. But I think the worst news for feminism is to assert feminine principles in this mythic archetypal sense of, you know Because uh, first, even historically, this is an old story that I like to repeat always, I loved it. Uh, In some uh, of those New Guinea, I don't know where, they had a tribe which is very uh, uh, matriarchy-oriented, you know, like... uh, they have a central uh, uh, sanctuary, whatever sacred place, which even uh, 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 it's formed like to look like vagina and so on. Even yeah, there is one slight problem: Women are, of course, prohibited access to that place. You know what I mean? What I'm saying is that uh, uh, the celebrating of the feminine principle can go very well with empirical, even stronger exclusion of women. Because I didn't find, not even one of this celebration of the feminine, which doesn't work in this way. Women are good, but as a silent worker's substance of our being, guide and so on and so on. You know which artist? I like him, but he has the most disgusting version of this. Richard Wagner, who said, Woman is something most noble and so on, insofar as she remains in shadow, as the grounding principle taking care of man. But if woman oversteps her limitation and becomes politically, socially active, it turns into devil itself. It's the worst thing. So, uh, what I'm saying here is that... uh, what you touched, we don't have time to go into it now, unfortunately, but it's a very important point that you make. And, my God, I'm so sad, I will really send you something, because this is what my new book is about, which I'm now <laughs> finishing. The title of it is Surprise, Surprise, Sex and the Faith Absolute. No, It's precisely, not just masculine, feminine, but uh, a very naive question about universal ontology, how reality is structured, and so on. And my formula is precisely how to avoid both the usual monism, one principle, and any dualism, light, darkness, and so on, and so on. My formula is the incomplete one. As Alenka Zupancic put it, the formula of sexual difference for me is not MF, masculine-feminine. When Lacan says there is no sexual relationship, he doesn't mean, and don't think that I'm stupid, here the confusion will be on purpose. It's not uh, men are from Venus, Venus women are for, from Mars, which I think is much more true than... But what I'm saying is that uh, when a says there is no sexual relationship, he doesn't mean masculine and feminine are in eternal struggle and so on and so on. No, they are radically asymmetric. Woman is the original plus, which is why, if you want, in some sense, she is the original subject, more than man, and so on. So I think, to go to the end, I know I have not convinced you, but we cannot do it now. I think that uh, every assertion of some, like Goethe did it, my God. When I read that Goethe's finale of Faos, you know, uh, Evig Weiblich, the eternally feminine drags me in, I become Goebbels, like throw that book on fire, and so on. I think that this idea of the eternally feminine is so deeply anti-feminist, racist, imperialist, and so on. No wonder that one of the most beautiful, I admit it, colonialist novels, you know, reader Haggard, she, this idea that in the middle of Africa, then, you find a wonderful kingdom with... The woman. This idea of a substantial woman secretly running, this is the ultimate uh, 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 masculine myth. For This is the basic masculine trick for me. Yes, woman is the eternal foundation, just keep, keep her there as the eternal foundation and so on. Now, I know I didn't uh, answer you, but you know that. woman is the
0: multiplicity in the void.
1: Uh, no, the woman is. I would even say, uh, 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 you know, what's the irony of that title, which, as you know, is from Beckett, no, "Incontinence of the Void." With Alenka Zupancic we made this joke because our books appeared almost at the same time. That maybe our two titles are are kind uh, uh, like question and answer. What is sex? Sex is the incontinence of the void. <laughs> she told, but uh, no, you know what's the problem here of Lacan? How to think sexual difference by on the why, one way avoiding this simple constructionism. There is no fixed identity. They are just this Judith Butler version. But also how to avoid any substantial duality. And I I think that Lacan shows up a path here, which also, again, opens up a new perspective on transgender and so on. Again, believe me or not, I'm a total partisan of transgender. But in my specific sense, I think that the paradox is this one. Transgender means we have men, women, and their difference as such. It's this beautiful dialectical paradox of you have the two elements which are differentiated and then you have their difference existing as such, separately. And this is also, incidentally, a logic of anti... If you think this is strange at a different level, I will not go into differences, doesn't exactly the same hold for the figure of the Jew in anti-Semitism. We have the two classes... Bourgeois proletarian, and Jew stands for class struggle as such. It's clear in antisemitism. Jew is the mystified figure of the class struggle as such. So, again, the, the problem here for me is uh, this one Freud is absolutely a modern thinker, in the sense that his ultimate word is utter contingency, his universe is the universe of modern science while I don't intend to go into it now, but I think Jung is some kind of rehabilitation of, of pre-modern wisdom. Now, I cannot go into it now, I know I didn't satisfy you, but now I will be vulgar and sorry, because when can a man really satisfy a woman? Never, and so on. But we would have to go much more substantially into uh, it. I think first of all,
0: was it, it was you? Yeah. Yeah, uh, the mic and then, and then. I want to ask to uh, uh, Thank you for uh, first of all. Thank you for uh, the talk. Uh, and uh, somewhere in your works, you uh, developed uh, the idea that um, uh, there is uh, the real, uh, but uh, how uh, people uh, create create the real. Uh, they uh, they stop talking about certain kind of events, uh, and they and and it is silence when they when uh, when you try to talk about it, and uh, you feel that you know this phenomenon yeah. uh, is uh, uh, expanded by people themselves, and and they and and unspoken un, un, and. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, so could you uh, just develop it? Oh my God, you are
1: again asking me a mega fundamental question. My point is just this one. There is a certain notion of the real which even some Lacanians endorse, which I think is totally wrong. The real as a new version of Kant's Nomenon, the thing in itself. Like, we live in a universe of symbolically structured appearances, but there is a hard real beyond. We cannot ever approach it. But I think that... Lacan's real is precisely something that has, it's much more virtual than our reality. Lacan's real is not some hardcore that we cannot ever grasp. It's something like, something that appears in between, in the cracks of different symbolic formations. May I, if this will maybe make it a little bit clearer, may I use one example which I use here often, but I think not in the last three, four years, earlier. You know, I had a strange experience which costed me friendship with that American writer, he died now, I think, Edgar Doktorov. Did he wrote uh, Billy Buzzgate? You know, it's my example. I first saw the movie, which is a shitty movie, Dustin Hoffman, uh, Nicole Kidman, and so on. And you can see in the movie how there must be some novel or whatever behind it much better. You can see that the movie is the failed version of something. So naively I thought, okay, let's go and read the novel. Then I discovered the novel is even worse. <laughs> and Doctor doctor learned this and says he doesn't want to meet me. <laughs> and so but what I want to say, you see this idea, you have, sorry to simplify it, a bad novel, a bad movie, but in between the two as a mirage, ...appears some really great work, but retroactively, you find it nowhere. This would be the platonic real, almost, the real as an idea. Something, this is crucial, this is why real is for Lacan, very fragile, it can break down at any moment... For example, let's give you a a disgusting example. Because you didn't get my usual treatment. I wasn't very disgusting today, no? Maybe a little bit. The example I use is this one. Uh, I will write about this, I think, I already mentioned it even here in my next book. (coughs) Let's say, I'm sorry, I will try to be as not concretely concrete as possible. Let's say you are in an intense erotic interplay. You are, I will talk as a male chauvinist. you are very close bodily to your naked beloved woman. Now I will stop here, not go into how you are close to vagina, whatever. (laughs) Doesn't it happen? And I checked it up with my feminine friends, they all report of the same. While you are in this erotic trance and so on, it can happen that all of a sudden, you have a kind of a, Dissolution of the fantasy effect. You all of a sudden says... And for women with penis, the same holds. I learned, sadly, myself. Like, but this is just a miserable, bad smelling traces of urine, piece of meat. You know, like, all of a sudden, when you become aware of the vulgar, concrete materiality of the object, you can really pass from this... Oh, my God, her can't spread out there, I'm sorry... <laughs> you fall into this total vulgarity and so on. Here the real disappears. It's totally wrong to say, no, here you see the body as it is in reality. No, exactly the opposite. The real is that thing that transpired through empirical naked body and made this body a kind of an absolute object. And then when the real dissipates, you just get the miserable reality. So that's important to see, (coughs) because even many Lacanians conceive of the real following the model of, you know, Sartre's early first great novel, La Nausea, Disgust, or how? Nausea, yes. You know, like when you see reality in all its uh, nonsensical inertia. No, that's not the real. The real is just this fragile something that appears and can disappear in a minute. I like this idea that that's why where the title of my book, Fragile Absolute, comes from, that the absolute is something we experience, but it's not a real absolute in the sense of existing out there. It's just a very fragile mirage. You see it for a moment, then you don't see it. And why I improvise this? Because something very amusing happened to me. Was it here or... No, I think it was in the States, not here. Somebody interrupted me and said, oh, this is typically intellectual. That when you are enthralled by a naked body, intimately holding your hand, that this idea of, my God, but look at it, bad smelling, maybe some dirt, disgusting body, that this is intellectual distance. I claim, no, it's exactly the opposite. For me, at least when it happened to me, bah, I'm sorry, it was a kind of an elementary gut reaction, you know. It was not that I started to think, but oh, look at that. No, it's kind of a, it's a very even, not deep, I hate this term, but very shattering experience. And in in here in the UK, you have a long tradition of this, Humor, making fun of this, like, you know, I quote it two, three times in my books, you know that legendary British joke that a lord in front of his palace on grass is doing, how do you call this, push-ups, and the butler comes and says, did your lordship not notice that the lady has already left and so on? You know, there is, I don't think this is really subversive. The proof, uh, here I'm an anti-Brechtian romantic. I think there is nothing heroic, great, extraneation in this. The proof is that already in medieval times, this was serially used by Christian theologists to, to... liberate you from sexuality. They say you think you... It's a standard... Even before Christianity, he was not before, but not a Christian. Marcus Aurelius writes about this and others. Like, you think you are enthralled holding a body. Just think about this body. Like, one inch beneath the skin. All the glands, the fat, the sheet, whatever, and so on. This idea... And I claim, paradoxically, that this this sublimation is nothing really subversive I don't I absolutely don't want to celebrate it as you cynically confront uh, the real and so on so again I cannot go I talk too much further now but the main point is again that the real is forget about this link the real is the substantial reality behind the real there is more real in appearances, in virtual appearance, in in something that is and it's not, uh, is and it's not there, how should I put it, you know. The, the, sorry. do you think that moment you're talking about is really a reflection of your
0: self-disgust? Yes. Yeah. You recognize yourself in the other. That's is the, a is good the, point, I must admit, I, I
1: haven't... Disgust Yeah, I haven't thought about it but uh, yes that although I don't like to haha fuck it why shouldn't the other be why me no but, uh, but I see your point Yeah. You know, when, when, you, when you smell someone homeless on the bus and they smell of piss and shit and they're sitting
0: there on the bus you're, you're recognising
1: your own state but, yeah, a but strictly it's oppressed a and, I, and now body. I will speak very frankly against myself because I don't smell myself but unfortunately other people always claim didn't you wash or whatever. <laughs> like, it's true that that uh, I have a couple of friends who are, and this is for me almost my true Stalinist ideal, who are able really to smell themselves where the, when they smell bad. But yes, yes, I agree with you, although, you know, the problem is nonetheless this one. Merleau-Ponty wrote wonderfully about this in his uh, Phenomenology of Perception Body and so on. How difficult it is really, not just rhetorically, to relate to your own body as an object. It happened to my ex-wife, and with all the divorce we went through, I kind of uh, still feel sympathy for her. You know, one of the few modes of this experience that you can get, she had some problems with her eyes, and she they made an operation which was not a difficult one, but extremely unpleasant. They took out her eye, only with local anesthesia, and then to correct something, they turned it around a little bit. And she had to collaborate, so she almost lost consciousness, but then it was a beautiful Stalinist moment. The doctor kept her way, telling her, if you lose consciousness, we will have to do all of it again. And this guy... <laughs> and, no, but... Now, seriously. She told me that her horrible moment was... When the eye turned around and, as it were, it was almost a godlike position. She saw part of herself from the outside. You know, like... It's not from within your body. As, and she told me it was, it was a nightmare. So I would nonetheless say that still this I now agree with you but still you displaced it onto the other but the true thing would have been to to look at yourself as it were maybe this is not even such a great thing maybe extreme perverts can do it perverts are nightmare I don't like them because I think only perverts can really uh, objectivize themselves you know perverts are Don't praise them too much, I mean, perverts are... Sorry, thanks, but it's a nice point, I will think about it, yes. Although, uh, no, I'm not now terrorizing you like, did you feel it? But I hope some of you admit it, my God, didn't it happen to you? It happens to me all the time, this weird Sartrean moment of nausea, of derealization, like, fuck it, it's all shit, it's so inert, what am I doing here, and so on, you know. It's... It is something, but uh, you know what's now my problem? And I told them they were not able to uh, reply to me. Some uh, cognitivist, biologist friends, I asked them a simple question. Do you think animals, those who fuck properly, primates and so on, do you think that they are able of such an experience? Let's say you have all your instincts, blah, blah, uh, mating, do it, and then... It's very weird. I would say no, because I would say such a disgust presupposes that you live in a fantasy universe sustained by fantasies, and it's the fantasy which breaks down, nothing in reality. So that would have interested me very much. Can they do it or not? No? No? It's the same with virtuality. Sorry for repeating myself, but that's my always a question to those who propagate artificial intelligence. You know the joke that I told 20 times here that I will not even repeat it all, Ninochka joke. You know, we don't have uh, milk, we just have cream, so I cannot give you coffee without milk, just with cream. So again, we have three coffees. Plain coffee, coffee without milk, coffee without cream. Materially they are the same, but symbolically they are not the same. My point, can a computer register this difference? Or it's just, you know, that the absence, that absence can also be present or absent. If you ask for, if a waiter brings you cream without milk, the milk is there as absent inscribed. It's not the same as plain coffee. Now, can the computer register this absence as such and they didn't give me a clear answer yes
0: in this room uh, some years ago um, Etienne Balabar and um, oh my god I've forgotten her name Wendy Wendy Brown oh my god I like Uh,
1: her she's more intelligent Wendy Brown
0: and uh, Etienne Balabar in conversation about the genealogy of Human capital, yeah. self enhancement for the purposes of yeah. credit and investment, and competition as the only relationality. Mm-hmm. The Lacanian Clinic, at the, you know, thinking of Eric Laurent's book yeah. of the other of biopolitics, psychoanalysis yeah. of the other of biopolitics. The cure is always subjectivity and the division in the subject. Yeah. So, my question is could you say something about the fact that we produce biopolitically as specs of human capital? And psychoanalysis, the, the treatment, is to become subject
1: with its division. It's a hard work. This is... Uh, okay, uh, allow me to answer uh, two days from now, because it's too complex. Uh, 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 this is a very complex question, because you must know how complex already it is with Lacan. Because although all the effort in uh, some of his late seminars is to move beyond... Subjectivity of capital. But the only formula that he provides is the saint. Like the only, and I, the, the position of a saint is for Lacan, saint as excrement out of this circulation. But I claim that with today's late capitalism, I wonder if even this works or not. What
0: about ordinary psychosis?
1: yeah, although uh, to answer this properly, I would have, I would nonetheless like to raise this question I hope we all agree that this traditional idea, you know, historicist obsession, today it's borderline we no longer have uh, hysteria and so on, they proceed too fast I think, I agree with what Miller developed some (coughs) 30 years ago already that Borderline is today's name for hysteria. He provides a wonderful, very precise formula that traditional hysteria is a master. Reaction to the master. You provoke the master by hysterical question. But today, that we no longer have the traditional master, but the expert science and so on, it's a very nice idea that borderline is the hysteria of this uh, new epoch. Now, what I don't know, I'm not bluffing here, is to what extent... I mean, the standard Lacanian position years ago was, as you probably know better than me, was that his, hysteria is historical. It's not just the... It's clear that with every historical epoch, different interpolation, mode of subjectivity, hysteria changes. Okay. What about uh, psychosis? There was one school my Australian friend Russell Greek wrote a text again 30 years ago where he claims that psychosis, paranoia and so on is much more ahistorical. And he tried to prove this with a wonderful reading of who was that one god guy Eknaton or who? The ancient Egypt. He described what we know about him symptoms and claimed this is almost the same as Shreber raised from the sun and so on. How Psychosis is much more non-historical. Now, I'm too stupid to uh, to answer this uh, question. But you know where I do agree? In my book, which one? I think it's in in Incontinence of the Void. And people accuse me, they're always attacking Miller. No, where I agree with my book there is that I refer to Miller... I you know with all the stuff written about Lacan and four discourses and capitalism, there is a long debate of capitalist discourse, which of them it is. There are a couple of versions. As you know probably better than me, Lacan tried to, at some point, he was tempted by conceptualizing as the, the fifth discourse master but with places changed. Uh, then for some people it's I have to this position that this big shift in modernity modernity is on the one hand this capitalist hystericization dynamic over more and this discourse that Foucault describes of surveiller punir, control sorry control and so on so that capitalism is constitutively split between university expert knowledge and hysteria surplus but the best version I heard, you know these are still moments of genius in Miller, is he said, what if the capitalist discourse is exactly the same in its formula as analyst discourse, just with that somehow the link functions in a different way. The agent of capitalist discourse is A, the surplus. This A, the surplus, addresses the subject and so on and, it, it works beautifully. So, again, I, because of lack of my knowledge, I am afraid to give you a concrete answer, but I, uh, I agree with you that, because, uh, that this is a key question, also because it's not clear even to me, like, do you have a position on this to be very brutal? To what extent can psychosis be dealt with in psychoanalysis? I'm not too optimistic here. Some guys that I knew, I will not name them, uh, were very, yes, we can, you just elaborate it a little bit, and so on and so on. But there are suspicions that these guys are really cheating. You know, because people don't take into account that. Psychosis, here I am a Lacanian, is a matter of structure, not of concrete symptoms. You can have a paranoia, but it can be a hysterical paranoia, and so on. Symptoms as such don't directly define the the mental mental state, and so on. Where things get really paradoxical is when Lacan, okay, he often flirted with these extreme formulations, but he somewhere says that normality is just a successful version of psychosis.
0: He called himself a, an ordinary psychotic. Yeah. He thought of himself as an ordinary psychotic. And many animals <coughs> in the clinic now, when they do case history, say that they are ordinary psychotics. And it sounds almost attractive.
1: Is there a choice yeah, for I, us? It's
0: just, a, it's just dealing with the marks on the body, meeting the, the, the marks, are, that kind of determ- that destination of meeting marks on the body, the non-ontological
1: there's
0: yeah, no yeah. address. There's outside structure, yeah. and then the SK booth, so that there is like both going on. You get what I'm saying? Okay. Yeah.
1: This Sorry, is maybe. Very yeah. To we discuss. go on. We yeah. Exactly. So please come tomorrow because it will be kind tomorrow, of a.
0: Tomorrow reading con- marks, Agon, Frank Ruder, and Slavoj Zizek. Not here, but at Friends' Meeting House. There are still tickets. There are still tickets. It's free, but you need to sign up to it's in Friends Meeting House, opposite okay.
1: Euston Station. I, that where we sometimes have is the opposite, the other one there.
0: Yeah, it, well, it's a, yeah, big, very big lecture theatre. It's in the
1: basement there.
0: I don't know, the light lecture theatre. Okay,
1: but there will be enough idiots of us there that uh, we and will recognise each other. The second
0: others. masterclass will be here again on again Wednesday, here. same
1: Thursday so, or, or thank two. Thank you,
0: everyone. Thank Thanks you so very a
1: much. <laughs>